Identifying your baggage in relationships. Baggage is probably the most common word. I use the word wounds, ego stories, trauma. These are all the same words to mean how we bring our childhood into our relationships. This is what happens. This is what you learn in therapy is how you are recreating your childhood in some way, in some fashion in your relationship now because it's familiar, because it's what you learned how love is or how love acts or how to deal with emotions. In my experience, people are really resistant to hearing that they're recreating their childhood in their relationship now. In my experience, people resist and revolt against that notion, maybe because they're ashamed, um, they don't want to take accountability, responsibility, and it's just our brain just seeks to recreate what it knows. It seeks to recreate what's familiar and what's comfortable. That's what our brain does. That's what it knows to do. It just seeks the familiar. And it's not bad or wrong. Like, I'm so sick of these notions of like feeling shame because you're recreating your childhood in some sort in your relationship when really it's just seeking healing, it's just seeking resolve. You know, cycles, cycles come again and again and again as opportunities to heal. Like in your child, if you had no voice and then you constantly keep seeking partners that have this dominating authoritarian voice, so you have no voice, you have an opportunity to gain your voice. Cycles come around and again and again for an opportunity to learn. So I'm going to explain my childhood and my relationship so that you guys can fully understand and hopefully not resist this notion that we recreate our childhood in our marriages just because it's what we know and we can change it if we want it. If, you know, if we're not, we're not comfortable with how our marriage is or how our relationship is, we can change it and we can change. It's not fast. It's not that fun sometimes. It might be uncomfortable, but it's worth it. So right now I'm, I'm reading the best book ever, How to Do the Work by the holistic psychologist, Dr. Nicole LaPera. I think that's how you say her last name. It's one of my favorite books ever. It's sold out everywhere, I think, because it's number one New York Times bestseller right now. It's, I'm just so, so, so happy that people are actually doing the inner work because this book explains everything. Everything, if you want to really look at yourself and do the inner work and stop repeating past patterns, this is the book, How to Do the Work. That's what it's called. So in chapter eight, she talks about ego stories. And I mean, I'm familiar with this concept, but I love that she began the chapter by saying for years when she would come home and there would be a pile of dirty dishes in the sink, boom, blind rage would course through her body. She would like hit the counter. She would yell. She would go into like a fight or flight response because the dishes triggered her that deeply and badly. Or she would go into a freeze response which would be shut down, shut out the world, shut out your partner, be silent, retreat. That's freeze. So after a lot of work, she discovered that 
obviously, it was never about the dishes. It's never about the dishes. It's never about that stupid thing that you're, part of, yeah, that you're fighting about with your partner. It came down to this narrative in her brain, an ego story that she learned in childhood that no one considers her. She's not considered. So the dirty dishes was the trigger to that ego story that her partner doesn't consider her because if her partner considered her, her partner would do the dishes for her every day. This is an ego story. This is a story made up completely in your head by your ego from your childhood. She brought her belief created in childhood that she's not considered into her relationship. And after tantruming about dirty dishes, it would always end in, to, in a fight. She brought her childhood into her relationship and it would cause disconnection and discord. This is what happens to all of us. This is why I'm obsessed with people who say the truth like that because we can all relate. So I'm going to say my stories because I don't have shame over them. I know you can relate to them and I'm so proud of the inner work I've done. I'm so proud of being able to pinpoint my ego stories. First, my disclaimer is that I know my parents were doing the best they could with what they knew at the time. I know my parents were doing the absolute best. Given they had six kids. They had six kids. Their attention, they had two parents and six kids. And so they just had to survive, right? And they were doing the best they could. But along the way, you know my emotional needs were absolutely not filled. And that's just kind of a classic tale of a big family. That's just what is. So some of my most pivotal memories, correction, my most emotional memories, because I have a lot of memories from my childhood that were like fun and amazing, you know, all of these memories, but emotional memories, the ones where I was feeling really, really, really big emotions And how did my parents handle my big emotions, right? So the memory is a memory because I was having a big emotion. So one story is I was tantruming in the hallway. It was nighttime. My parents' bedroom was open. They were laying in bed. I was on my hands and knees crawling in the hallway, bawling and screaming and tantruming. And they, I could see them and they ignored me like, I was invisible. I wasn't even there. No matter how loud I was, no matter how loud I screamed, kicked, screamed, they ignored me and I was invisible. So what that concluded to me as a child is I am not seen or heard. No matter how loud I scream, no matter how loud I tantrum, I'm not seen or heard. So I'm not that important. Like people don't really care about me. You know, I don't even matter because I couldn't even flinch their emotions. I couldn't even get them to react in 1%. I was invisible. Another example is that I would threaten to run away a few times because that's a cry for help. Like anytime your child is like, I'm going to run away from this family. That's a cry for help. That means they are feeling something so big and they are so hurt and they need to know they are loved. They need to know they are cared for and that they're important, they are wanted. So I 
I would threaten to run away because I needed to know people cared and that I would be missed if I, if I ran away. And I never got a reaction. I never got a response. So I feel like I, I mattered so little that I couldn't even get a response from them. It's really crazy to look back and see that no matter what tactic I tried, no matter what I would threaten, I was invisible, never got a response. You know, I basically concluded I'm not seen, I'm not heard, I'm not important, I'm not cared for, right? <laughs> Love taught me that it ignores when you are in your deepest pain and emotional pain, deal with it on your own. Handle it by yourself. So that's what I do. As an adult, even when I would be, you know, with my husband, like in our early years of dating, I could never cry in front of him. I would have to run out of the room and be alone when I cried because I was never taught how to cry in front of someone. I was never taught how to look someone in the eyes and like cry and say my deepest feelings because. I was taught to do it alone, fend for yourself. Yeah. So obviously huge vulnerability issues. Like I could only have big emotions by myself, with myself, not with anyone else. So this is, that was the recipe for really intense vulnerability issues, which I mean, obviously I have and I've been working through them. So fast forward to I'm like 18, 19 when I meet my husband. Yeah, I was really young. So everything he would do, my ego story was he doesn't even care. He doesn't care. Like I'm not important. I'm not number one. He doesn't care about me. I'm not seen. I'm not heard. And I know these are common stories, but we usually have one main ego story like one main narrative and mine is he doesn't care enough he doesn't care enough so no matter what he does basically what's communicated is like he doesn't care enough so I'll, I'll share a story what happened a few nights ago we're reading how to do the workbook together and we only read it like a few times a week and it's hard when he comes home after a really long day and I want to connect and he's extroverting all day at work, but I need my emotional connection with him. Like that's what I need to feel loved, but he's so strung out and it's hard. Like it's a hard compromise. And I think a lot of people relate to that. So the other night I'm reading him the, the book and he's literally falling asleep. He's falling asleep while I'm talking. So what do you think my ego story started to say? He doesn't even care. This isn't even important to him. This is like the smallest example of how your ego story, that main ego narrative, and we have a lot of ego stories, but, but I think there's typically like this main golden one that we cling to in almost all of our moments with our partner. And mine is, he's falling asleep while I'm talking. And my ego started saying, he doesn't even care. Look at it, he doesn't even care. And then 
this is the most ironic part about ego stories is that my ego story, if I voice it, it directly triggers his ego story. So after therapy, we learned his ego story is nothing he does is enough. He will never be enough. So when I say my ego story of you're falling asleep, you don't even care what I'm talking about. You don't even care. His ego story says, well, nothing I do is good enough. You know, like I'm here trying to listen and it's not good enough because I'm falling asleep and that's nothing I do is good enough. So why do I try? That's his ego story. And my ego story triggers his ego story. And this is how we're perfect for each other. So in years past, I would have gotten mad in that moment, in that little moment, I would have gotten mad. I would have shut down. I would have retreated inside of me and stonewalled him like silent treatment. That's my poison. And then maybe like after simmering inside, brewing within me, like maybe an hour later, be like, you are falling asleep. Like you don't even care, blah, 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 blah. That would, that would be years ago when I wasn't aware, present of that ego story. And, you know, I wasn't aware of the emotion I was feeling in the moment, but now I'm at a whole other level and it's amazing and it's beautiful. And I'm just, it's it's fun for me. Like being present with my emotions is fun for me. So in the moment he's falling asleep, I witness my ego starting getting mad. Like my body starts getting agitated, mad. And then I walk away because that's kind of like my MO. I walk across the house and as I'm walking away, I'm replaying the scene in my head, like feeling like, what, what are these feelings in me? And I realize, oh my gosh, my ego story is playing out. I don't, it's saying he doesn't care about me because he's falling asleep. And if I said that to him right now, he would feel like he's not enough. So then I go to my bedroom. He actually follows me because he felt that discord. He felt that energy. And this is what we're getting so good at. And I'm so proud of me and of him. He felt that energy And he followed me and said, hey, where, what is your childhood trauma? Because that was what I was reading last in the book. So he felt that discord. He followed me to the room and then asked me a question, whether it was genuine or not. Like, I don't know if he cared about the question or the answer, but he felt that discord and he followed me and then I told him, then that was my opportunity to be like, hey, our ego story just played out. And then I told him what, what was just happening. And we were able to just like, boom, deal with it in the moment. And I'm just like, see, this is it. Like, this is the work. Like, this is what it's all about. It never had to turn into a fight. Yeah, of course, I was a little angry that he was falling asleep, but I should be able to see that he's falling asleep and be like, hey, let's shut the book. Clearly you're tired and I'm like asking too much of you because you just work 12 hours. Okay, I'll shut the book. We'll do it a different day. I mean, like I should be emotionally attuned to him when he's falling asleep too, right? Like, ah, that's on me. So that's the most recent example of our ego stories. But another classic example just about book reading. Like this is, this is a 
sore topic in our house. In the past, I would ask him to read a book that's really important. Like it's about emotions or marriage or whatever. I'd ask him like, can you please read this book? Or a therapist would be like, you should read this book. He would read it like maybe three times and then never open it again. And this was a constant pattern. And like, it's such a sore topic. And because I communicated that action of his of only reading it three times and shutting it down and off forever and then never opening it again as he doesn't care. He doesn't care about our marriage enough. He doesn't care about me enough. Our marriage isn't important. And then if I were to say anything to him, he would be like, oh, well, nothing I do is good enough. So I'm never going to be good enough. So this time I'm not, I'm not asking him to read a book anymore because, I mean, I'm passionate about this topic. So I actually want to be involved and I'm super passionate about this book, you know, how to do the workbook. So it's my opportunity to read about it with him and talk about it with him because, I mean, this is what I am passionate about. And I recognize that he's not like this is not his passion, but I will say it's rubbing off on him. This is all I talk about and it's rubbing off on him and it's amazing and it's little baby steps and it's such slow progression, but it is progression and I love it. So the ego story we have so many like if your friend does something to you we create this ego story in our head about what it means and what we think it means and it's all assumption based it's not based in reality our ego is creating stories probably every minute of every day you just have to sit and watch the ego to watch its story making it's so creative we have so many ego stories and it's concocting every day every day every day but when you're in a relationship you do typically have this one main story about yourself like I'm not important enough or I'm not cared for enough or in the book you know she's never considered the holistic psychologist that example in her book you know her childhood taught her that she's never considered so then she brought that into her relationship So to decode and deconstruct what your ego narrative is, you really have to pay attention. It's probably the most common feeling you feel in your relationship. It could be not being seen and heard, but usually it's like even more specific than that. So just observe and even write down, like write down in a notebook, all of like your biggest fights with your partner or like the most emotional moments with your partner and try to deconstruct down to the root, down to the root what that ego story is. So moving on, I'm going to say another example of how we recreate our childhood into our relationships. This one is a little more complex of figuring out but it's just as exciting (laughs) okay so and it's and it is it is tied to the ego story it for sure is but it is a little different i'm just going to explain it and see how it falls in your lap or not so 
in my childhood, like I've said, my parents were doing the best they could, but they have they had six kids. So they they could not emotionally attune to every child. No way. That's not even like possible. Actually, I wonder if it is possible. I don't know. Maybe if neither parent worked <laughs> and their full-time job was at home with all six kids. But my parents never emotionally attuned to me, maybe only when I was sick. Like I knew if I was sick, I would get attention and I would be attuned to. So I liked being sick. I had chronic earaches and um, I liked that attention, of course. Like I was craving love and attention and to be seen and heard and being sick got me those things. So my parents couldn't emotionally attune to all of us and I was never emotionally attuned to. Like no matter how big of emotions I was feeling, no one was ever there for me. No one attuned to me. No one was like, Leah, you're having such a hard time. How can I help you? Can I give you a hug right now? No, I did not get any of that. So I did not get emotionally attuned to at all. Then I grow up and I choose a partner that has no idea how to emotionally attune to me. Of course, I mean, he doesn't know how to emotionally attune to himself, but I could, you know, I could be throwing like the biggest tantrum and for a while I felt like that would never get his attention or or sometimes I had to resort to that. Okay, usually it was, you know, I couldn't, I couldn't give hints. I couldn't leave subtle hints. I couldn't use subtle statements. The only way I could be heard was a tantrum in my relationship. That's, that's typically, you know, the pattern. And sometimes it's still like that. And I do think, yes, of course, it is a gender issue because men are basically taught to shut off their emotional body and they're not connected to or in tune with their emotions. That's just our culture. It's our society. It's wrong. It's not okay. I wish I could change it and fix it. I want to I wanna save the world, but I'm just me. And I have a female audience. I don't have a male audience. So I just do what I can with my own husband, with the own males in my life, with my brothers, you know? So my childhood, my parent figures did not know how to attune to me, never did, never could, didn't know how. I never got emotional attunement. And then the number one thing I feel in my relationship, we've been together hmm, maybe 14 years, is I'm not emotionally attuned. Like, I'm not seen, I'm not really heard unless I tantrum. And of course, it's because he has never learned how to emotionally attune to himself because he's a guy in this culture. And so, yes, this is like kind of, this can be applied to a lot of you listening, but this is, this is for sure how I've recreated my childhood in my relationship because I come from a big family and no one was emotionally attuned to me. That's what's familiar to me. So I recreated that in my relationship. And you know what? I got the hint. I recreated it. I chose a familiar pattern that's just from my childhood now into my relationship. And I'm using it to actually learn about emotional attunement. Like this is my passion now. Me and my husband are learning about emotional attunement. It cycled back around and I'm learning it. That's what I'm doing. This is 
my sole passion and mission. I'm going to give you a few other examples of other people I know, like my friends. You know, this is the stuff we talk about. So I have a friend who also grew up in a big family and she always felt like all her siblings were against her. Like she always had to defend herself. I don't know. Like there was just this family dynamic where they kind of always put her down and no one, no one was in her corner. She always had to defend herself and speak up for herself and fight for herself. And I mean, that's lonely, right? That's just, that's just sad. But now in her relationship right now, she's going through that exact same thing. Her partner is dealing with some big things and he's not treating her that good. And all she has to do is defend herself all the time. She's back in her childhood where people were just kind of nagging her or making fun of her and she had to defend herself. And now she's doing it in her relationship. It's recreating that same energy pattern. She feels, right? So it's not like, it's not like we just, oh, we just marry our mom or dad energetically. Sometimes it's a sibling dynamic. It's a recreating of an energy pattern. She always had to defend herself against her siblings. And now she has to defend herself against her husband. It's a recreating of an energy pattern. Another example is I have a friend who had a pretty chaotic childhood where her father was into substance abuse. And so he was very inconsistent with his emotions. So when you have a parent figure that is inconsistent with their emotions, meaning, you know, one day they're just so loving and you're like, oh, they're, oh, they're loving. They're nice to me. Then boom, five days later, they're raging. They're angry. Nothing you do is good or right. Or, you know, as a child, you do something little that's wrong and they rage and they're angry. But on their loving day, they were totally fine with it. So as a child, you could never gauge what emotion your parent was going to bring to you on that day. Were they going to be loving and compassionate or raging in anger? That is, that is terrifying as a child, but more so, that teaches a child to always be in fight or flight um, nervous system response. Like The child's nervous system is always going to be ramped up because it is ready for an attack. It's a child's nervous system is constantly ramped, which is chronic stress, just because of a parent that is inconsistent with their emotions. The child is chronically stressed. Their nervous system is ramped up because when the parent is angry, that's equivalent to a tiger being in the room. They are not safe. They are scared. This leads to emotional addiction in adulthood. Okay, let's just talk about emotional addiction. This is one of my favorite topics. Adults that had a very stressful childhood or simply a parent that had inconsistent emotions, they were taught to have a chronic fight or flight response in their body. So their nervous system chronically had adrenaline and cortisol being dumped into their system, pumped, pumped through their body because they never knew when their 
when they would be in danger. You know, they didn't know if today was the day their parent would be loving or angry. So this child grows up to be an adult that unconsciously seeks chaos, stress, watches the news to get a cortisol dump. These are adults that are addicted to their own stress hormones. If their life is peaceful, they're bored. Because peace doesn't have their stress hormones of cortisol and adrenaline pumping through them to make them feel alive, to make them feel. Adults that have emotional addiction, they will do anything just to feel. And that includes doing things they know they shouldn't, like um, watching the news, watching hor- like crime scene investigation shows that pump cortisol and make them feel scared, but at least they're feeling. They will do anything to feel something because feeling something, even a bad emotion like stress or anxiety is better than feeling nothing to them. Adults that are addicted to their own stress hormones also are the ones that nitpick and poke and prod in their relationships to get a response from their partner. Because if no fighting's happening or no discord's happening, they're kind of bored. And they would prefer having like a little fight to give them a little dump of uh, adrenaline than to feel bored. This is why I think you have seen, we've all seen the people who, I mean, I've been through my stages of being mad about things that happened in 2020, right? Like we all have opinions about 2020, but there are a lot of people who thrived in the chaos of 2020. They thrived in the constant fearful charged news stories of 2020 because even though it would make them scared, or have anxiety, they felt alive. Because in childhood, they were operating from such a highly charged baseline that as an adult, they have to just keep jacking up their stress, their chaos, their anger, and they know they shouldn't be seeking all of these news headlines that make them angry, but that's what feels good to them. Not not necessarily good, but comfortable, familiar. This is emotional addiction and it's really common. So anyways, my friend that was raised in a home with a dad that had substance abuse problems and then was very inconsistent with his emotions because of those substance abuse problems, she lived a childhood of fight or flight stress response that heightened state. So then when she grew up, she chose relationships that had massive highs and massive lows, really unstable because she recreated her childhood in her relationship. Her childhood was very unstable emotionally. And then she would seek the relationships that gave her the highest of highs, like that, that lust, that highest of high feeling. But with that type of partner, she would have the absolute lowest of lows and some abuse too. This is all because her nervous system learned that it needs to be highly engaged to feel normal. So then in her adult relationships, she had to seek the highs and lows 
because she seeked that inconsistency because that was familiar. That's what's comfortable. Even though, of course, it's, it causes so much pain and suffering, those low lows and the inconsistency, it's what's comfortable and familiar to her nervous system. So that's why she would choose it. And sometimes she would even consciously choose it, but it's too addicting because it's emotional addiction. You need that adrenaline. You need that cortisol to feel, to feel alive. Then with therapy and inner work, she understood this addiction and understood this cycle. And she successfully has chosen a partner that does not give her highs and lows. And yes, at first she's like, this is boring. This is so boring. Like I can't do this. But she had to consciously be in her body and choose something the opposite of what her body was telling her because her body seeks that high, that insane, insane drug high from love. Her body was telling her she needs that. She had to consciously choose the opposite. And from therapy and inner work, she did it. And she's like in an amazing, successful relationship with someone that is stable. She got out of the cycle. She could never have done that without diving inwards and going to therapy because she had to override her entire like feeling, her entire nervous system. She had to override her nervous system of seeking that high and to seek something stable. And it was hard and she doubted a lot of it along the way, but she just kept like grinding through and like, no, if I want to change, I have to change my, my actions, my behavior, my decisions now. Because if I don't change my behavior and my decisions, I'm going to just keep recreating the past. And I don't want the past. I'm done with inconsistency. I'm done with the highs and lows. I don't want that anymore. So if you guys are interested in dissecting, if you have recreated any part of your childhood in your relationship, you have. I just, it takes a lot of like guts to actually want to face it and to figure it out. So congrats to you if you want to do that. And if you do, I would reflect on your biggest emotional stories from your childhood and see what like the message you got from that was. Like for mine, remember, it was like no one emotionally attuned to me. And then when I would reflect about the biggest message I would get in my relationship and what I want for my husband so bad, what I want so bad is to be emotionally attuned to. It just requires a lot of reflection on your biggest like emotional moments and messages from your childhood and of your relationship. So it's just a lot of reflection. And then when, you know, moments of like disconnection or fighting happens in your relationship, it just requires like a deconstructing of what's really going on, like the root of it. So I hope this episode wasn't too confusing because I talked about two ways that uh, we bring our childhood into our relationship. It's the ego stories, which we have many ego stories, but we mainly have that one narrative that just sticks. And then there is like this other aspect that is maybe like more of like an energetic pattern. 
So I talked about my friend who her siblings always made fun of her. She had to defend herself. And now her husband is doing that. And she's feeling like, oh, this is exactly how I felt in childhood. And then my friend who had a very inconsistent parent. And then when in adulthood, she chose an inconsistent partner because that, that was just familiar. There's a lot to this topic. Like, I feel like I just hit the little tip of the iceberg, but I'm going to wrap it up here because I could talk for another 30 minutes, but I love keeping these short because I know a lot of you are moms and you just don't have that much time in your day. And just giving yourself 30 minutes to listen to something like this is your self-care. And I'm so proud of you. And thank you for doing something for you.